Our scripture passage for the message this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. Please hear the word of our Lord. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me as we get into this passage. There will be silence before you, O Lord. There will be silence in your presence, Lord. There will be praise and there will be joy. There will be loud rejoicing. but there are times for silence. (laughs) Or it's the hardest thing when you want to be silent to get up and preach. And I just pray that you would please give me grace this morning. Lord, please guard and protect your people. Encourage and strengthen their hearts in the truth. Father, we pray that Christ would be lifted high this morning and that those who love your Son would rejoice in him freely, without hindrance, Lord, without fear. Lord, let us rejoice in you this morning by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Let us know you in truth and let us worship you in spirit. Lord, those are the worshipers that you're seeking. Not those who just know the truth, but those who, knowing the truth, worship you with full hearts. Bless us as we come to you. Bless us in the preaching of your word. Bless us as we hear your word proclaimed. As we gather around your table to lift high, Lord, the gospel as our hope. 
We pray that in all that we do, you would attend our service. Lord, you would be here among us. We would know your presence with us and we would be forever changed as a result of worshiping and communing with you this morning. Father, open our ears that we may hear. Open our minds to understand. May our hearts be soft to receive your word today. God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the final two verses of the book of 1 Timothy. And I believe on your outline, or at least your sermon note page, it seems to indicate that we're going to finish this whole thing today, and um, that is just not going to happen. So uh, Today we're going to look at verses 20 and most of verse 21, and then next week we will come back and look at the close of this letter, which is Paul's prayer that grace would be upon the believers. Last week we finished looking at Paul's doxology, uh, that is, his, his worship of God, his praise of God that's found in verses 15 and 16. And today we're in verse 20. And some of you may be wondering why we're not covering verses 17 through 19. That's because we already looked at those verses in connection with verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 6, where Paul was addressing the love of money and the danger of loving money and exhorting believers not to pursue money, not to set their heart upon it and not to labor after it. That, lay, that left open a question, though, what should believers who have money or believers whom the Lord eventually will give money to, whom the Lord will make rich, what are they supposed to do with their money? That's what verses 17 through 19 is addressing. How should rich believers steward their finances in a way that honors the Lord? And the primary principle there, just for those of you who may not have been here for that, is uh, basically we use what the Lord entrusts to us in this world in order to lay a good foundation for the world that is to come. It means everything that God gives us in this world is to be used for the sake of his name, for his glory, and for the spread of his kingdom. And Jesus says there is nothing that we give up in this world for his name's sake or for the sake of his word that will not be repaid to us in the life to come. So that's a short little sermonette on verses 17 through 19 for those of you who weren't there here for that. Now today we come to the last two verses which contain Paul's final instructions for Timothy in this letter. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to approach these verses remembering and keeping in mind that these are the last things that Paul wants to say to Timothy personally. When we come to verse 20, it's only the second time in this entire letter that Paul addresses Timothy by name. He addresses Timothy by name at the beginning of the letter, and here he addresses Timothy by name at the end of the letter. That call for grace to be with you, that you there is plural. That's not being addressed directly to Timothy. That is being addressed to all of the believers in Ephesus. And so what we have here in verses 20 and 21, most of 21, are Paul's final instructions that are being 
pointedly directed at Timothy. We need to keep that in mind as we move through this. What is it that, Timothy's re- or that Timothy really needs to understand? What is Paul laboring to make sure that Timothy gets in this letter? Now, what we'll look at here and what we'll see is that these verses contain the last appeal and exhortation for Timothy to be faithful in the ministry that the Lord has entrusted to him, and particularly by guarding this precious treasure, this deposit that the Lord had placed in his hands. Now today, for those of you who are taking notes, we're going to look at this under three main headings. First of all, we're going to look at Paul's plea. Paul's plea. Secondly, we're going to look at the opposition. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the results. It may not make sense at the moment, but by God's grace, that will make sense as we walk through this. So look with me, first of all, at Paul's plea. Verse 20 opens with Paul saying, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Now, this verse opens with what is called an emphatic address. It's not a calm request that Paul is setting down before Timothy. It's not Paul sitting back in his armchair saying, Now, Timothy, this is, I think, I think this is really what I want you to do. This would be good. Would you consider doing this? It's not written in a polite tone, nor is it written in a civil tone. In fact, if Paul were speaking with Timothy and telling Timothy what he's written here in this letter, Paul would probably elevate his voice a little bit and say, Oh, Timothy! That address is signaling that this appeal from the Apostle Paul is filled with deep emotion and with impassioned urgency, even anguish on Paul's part. In essence, Paul is begging Timothy very strongly to make sure that he does something. And what is it that he is wanting to make sure that Timothy does? Well, very clearly you see, oh, Timothy, Paul says, guard what has been entrusted to you. I think the ESV translates this better when it says, guard the good deposit, or excuse me, guard the deposit entrusted to you. You might turn me down just slightly, Chris. A deposit in biblical times referred to valuable property that one person would entrust into the care of another. Most often when we think of a deposit, we think of a deposit of money that we're putting down on a home or a car. And I guess in one sense, we are placing something valuable into the hands of someone else and most often into the hands of a bank. But in biblical times, this had a very specific meaning, very particularized meaning that referred to one person entrusting something of great value and great importance, of personal significance, into the care of someone else. You can see this, for example, in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 2, where this word appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, speaking of a deposit that one companion would entrust to his or her friend. Now, according to God's law, according to this verse, 
the one who was entrusted with that deposit had the responsibility to make sure that he took care of that deposit. He had the responsibility to make sure that he dealt honestly with what was entrusted to him, to protect it, to keep it safe for the sake of its owner. In fact, it was interesting as I was studying this word to find that it was often used in ancient times to speak of a father entrusting his daughter into the hands of his son-in-law. You want to talk about entrusting something precious and valuable into the hands of someone else. I can't imagine, I can't imagine, man, I'm crying right now even thinking about it. I can't imagine how difficult it's going to be for me to take my daughter's hand and put her hand, any of my daughters, and put their hands into the hand of another man and entrust the well-being and the safety and the guardianship and the protection of my daughter to someone else. (laughs) I think every father in here would amen. No one will love your children the way you do, especially not your daughter's. No one will love your girls the way you do as a father. At least you think that anyway. Well, in that same way, with that same significance, that same idea of preciousness and value, in that same way, Timothy had been entrusted with something precious. And Paul is urging him in this verse to spare no effort in making sure that he guards what has been entrusted to him, that he protects it, that he keeps it safe. In fact, this same uh, exhortation, is, this is so important to the Apostle Paul that he not only closes this letter with an exhortation for Timothy to guard what had been entrusted to him, but he also opens the letter of 2 Timothy with the exact same charge. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. It's the same word as appears here in 1 Timothy 6.20. Now, what was that treasure? What was that precious thing that Timothy needed to make sure that he took care of? Well, as we've walked through this letter, we've seen it described in many different ways. In chapter 1, verse 4, we saw it described as the administration of God that is by faith. That is, it's a stewardship, an administration that belongs to God that is given into the hands of a minister to be applied and worked out in the life of the church. An administration or a stewardship that is worked out through increasing faith, building up the faith of the saints. Or you could see in chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, where what is entrusted to the church, or here specifically what is entrusted to Timothy, is the testimony about Christ, our mediator. That there is only one who is able to stand between holy God and sinful man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. The only one who can lay his hand upon God and at the same time lay his hand upon sinful man and bring a reconciliation between the two. The only one who is worthy and capable and able of bringing two opposed parties together in one and establishing in himself peace. The mediator, Christ Jesus. This is, as it says in verse 6, this is the testimony that was given At the proper time. 
Verse 7 goes on to say, I don't have it up here, but it says, And for this, Paul was appointed an apostle and a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It is this testimony of the mediatorship of Jesus Christ, the exclusive mediator for man before God. This is what has been deposited into the hands of the Apostle Paul, into the hands of the church, into the hands of Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 16, described this as the common confession of all true churches. The common confession concerning the mystery of our godliness, which is not a call to works. The mystery of our godliness is not a regimented uh, lifestyle of laboring to earn God's favor and to become more like Him. That is not the mystery of true godliness in the church. The mystery of true God-likeness in the church has everything to do with the message of Jesus. It's the one who was manifested in the flesh. That is the mystery of our godliness. The one who was given over for sinners and shed his blood on their behalf, who then was vindicated by the Spirit. That's the mystery of our godliness. We boast not in ourselves, we boast in the Lord, right? It's the good news of salvation and gaining God's favor, not through our own efforts, but through the one who was manifested in the flesh and who ascended into glory on our behalf. The message that has the resultant task of believing in this one who was manifested in the flesh and then proclaiming him among the nations. Man. That's the mystery of our godliness, and that is the deposit that was entrusted to Timothy. You can see this in other places in 1 Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 6 describes that deposit, what had been entrusted to Timothy, as the words of the faith and sound doctrine. Chapter 6, verse 3 describes this more fully as words that agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doctrine that agrees with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and with godliness. But I think the clearest statement that is, that is defining what this deposit is, is found in chapter 1, verse 11. You guys still with me? No. Kind of. I'm going to stop asking that, I think, whenever I'm convinced that you're with me. But I'm going to start asking it. Can I get an amen? I'm going to start amening myself. Amen, Brother Seth. That was good preaching right there. <laughs> Woo! Man. Hallelujah. Preach it. Now, the clear statement about what is deposited into the hands of Timothy in the church is found in chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul himself talks about being entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Paul says, I was entrusted with this. I believe that word there is, is a form of the word faith. That I have been, I have been uh, given over this as one who is trustworthy. And one who is to be trustworthy. It is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God specifically that has been deposited into the hands of the Apostle Paul has been deposited into the hands of Timothy, and by extension has been entrusted to the church. 
It's the good news of salvation and gaining God's favor, not through the works of the law, but through the blessedness of God in Himself that gave rise to the mediator, Jesus Christ. The blessed gospel of the glory of God is the reality of the message that Jesus came to save unworthy sinners in spite of them and despite them. It's that message of uncompromised and unadulterated grace from God by which a sinner is made right with Him. It's that great and glorious news of God's mercy, the blessing of His grace which is poured out abundantly upon those who have the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel of God's glory, and that has been entrusted to the Apostle Paul. And that same gospel is what had been entrusted to Timothy. You could think of it as the baton being passed on to Timothy. Now, Paul had run faithfully with that gospel in Ephesus. He's no longer there. Whose turn is it now to run faithfully with that gospel? It's Timothy's. And so long as Jesus Christ kept Timothy planted in Ephesus, it was his responsibility to guard that good deposit no matter what. To protect it and to uphold it and to keep it from all stain and corruption and to advance it in Ephesus and to preserve the advances that had already been made. Until the day when Christ appears to receive from Timothy's hand what already belonged to him, what had been entrusted. Now, there are two things implied in this call to guard the deposit that I want to point out here. First of all, the fact that Timothy was called to guard something that had been entrusted to him meant that what he was guarding did not belong to him. Timothy was called to guard something that did not belong to him. The word deposit draws attention to the simple truth that the gospel is not Timothy's gospel. The gospel is not even Paul's gospel, even though he would say, according to the preaching of my gospel, he was in referring to the gospel of God. As Romans 1.1 says, beyond anything else, the gospel is God's gospel. And by His mercy and His grace, God has entrusted the message and the safekeeping of His gospel into the hands of the church. That's huge. That's significant. God has, I mean, just, this is not in my notes, so it probably feels like it, but just think about God entrusting the gospel of his glory into the hands of a sinful man. That is mercy and grace beyond measure. We can't comprehend the kindness of God in revealing to us the mystery of his will and then calling us to spread the mystery of his will to others. You and I have been entrusted with that gospel as Timothy was entrusted with that gospel. 
And that means that the gospel of God that God had entrusted to Timothy and to us does not belong to us. It belongs to God and it is defined by God. We are only to guard and protect it and even to contend for it, as Jude 1 says. But we are never permitted to change it. And we are never permitted to minimize any aspect of it. And beloved, I hope that in our own day you see you see how important this charge is, not only for Timothy, but for us. Western culture has never been more like the culture in which Timothy was ministering than it is now. In fact, I would say we have digressed further. We've gone further away from the culture in which Timothy was ministering. They would not have permitted marriage to be defined as one man and one man and one woman and one woman. They were fine with homosexuality, but they would not allow marriage to be defined that way. We've gone much further down the rabbit hole than they did. What we see from this letter is how much the gospel in Ephesus was under attack. It was being distorted. It was being misrepresented. It was being altered. It was being minimized. It was being redefined. And the same is happening in our day at a rate and a scale that prior to the times in which we are living would have been unfathomable. Would not have been imagined to be possible. And the pressure, the resultant pressure to change the gospel or even the temptation to de-emphasize one element of its teaching has never been greater upon the church. But we are not permitted to do that. We are not permitted to change it, and we are not permitted to de-emphasize any aspect of what it says. We must only protect it, guard it, and proclaim it. You know, Paul did not instruct Timothy to de-emphasize any part of the gospel's demands for the culture in which he was ministering. He simply called him to plant his feet firmly to make sure that he protected that treasure that God had placed in his hands. Uh, just, we need to move, but just as a, as a side note, write this down, Luke 9, 26. Jesus says to us, he who is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed in the presence of the Father and of his holy angels. Now, I want you to pay attention to that. I'm not going to elaborate on this anymore, but I want you to notice what he says there. Jesus does not say, he who is ashamed of me only. Jesus says, he who is ashamed of me and my words. If we stand proclaiming the name of Jesus, but are unwilling to proclaim the words of Jesus, we stand condemned before our Lord. If we are ashamed to own the truth in a culture that minimizes truth and rejects truth, then we are not worthy of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you don't confess me, I will not confess you. It doesn't matter what you say about believing in his name. If you are ashamed to stand in his teaching, Jesus will not own you. It's his gospel. It's God's gospel. And God is zealous to make sure that it is protected and proclaimed. 
We don't have the authority to mess around with it. Timothy didn't have the authority to mess around with it. We only have been given authority by God to proclaim it. And if we have to die in proclaiming it, then so be it. But we must be willing to accept that responsibility and be faithful in executing it. So that's one thing that is implied in Timothy being called to guard this deposit, what had been entrusted to him. Now secondly, and it leads to our second point, the call to guard the gospel implies very clearly that there is something opposing it. It's our second point, the opposition that Timothy was facing in Ephesus. In verse 20, Paul says, Timothy, guard the deposit, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. There were enemies of the gospel in Ephesus. And I want you to notice that Paul does not here identify those enemies as the false teachers themselves. What does he identify as the opposing element that is standing against the gospel? It's not the false teachers themselves. It was the false teachings that they were spreading. They were counterfeits of the truth. They were counterfeits. They were alternatives that were being set up in opposition to the gospel of God's glory. And Timothy needed to guard the gospel of God's glory by standing on guard against these intruders, these intruding doctrines. Now, these false teachings are described here by Paul in two ways. We'll take them in order. First of all, actually, we're going to take them in reverse order. Notice first that Paul describes them as, uh, well, hang on. I jumped ahead. They are described as worldly and empty chatter. Literally, they are described as profane and empty noise. Profane and empty noise. And there are a couple things here. Notice first that the false teaching going around Ephesus was nothing more than empty noise. It was empty chatter. Chatter that was without substance. Meaning it was, it was just meaningless noise that had no lasting significance. There was no real application that could be drawn from this teaching in establishing or cultivating a life of communion and fellowship with God. It was pointless. Pointless discussion. That's why Paul describes it in uh, chapter 1 verse 6 as fruitless discussion. It was discussion that bore no fruit that was good. Merely pointless ideas that have no lasting benefit. So it was just empty noise. And then also, Paul says, it was worldly and empty chatter. Now, more accurately translated, this word ought to be translated profane. It is profane and empty chatter. This word was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. One of those times was in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. You guys remember the setting? Aaron's sons had died because they put strange fire upon the altar of God. And the Lord said to Aaron, explaining what was going on in that incident, the Lord said to Aaron that when the high priest come into the tent of meeting, they must be careful to make a distinction between the holy and the profane. That's the word Paul uses. 
between the unclean and the clean. Now that is what Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, that is what they had failed to do. They had failed to maintain that distinction between that which is holy and that which is profane, that which is clean and that which is unclean, and they paid for it. The holiness of the Lord struck out against them for violating that holiness. And that seems to be what Paul is likening this false teaching to that was circulating around Ephesus. It was of the same spirit and of the same quality and the same character as that disobedience that had been performed by Nadab and Abihu. It was strange fire that was being put upon the altar of God. And therefore, it must be resisted and the truth must be guarded. The prophet Ezekiel takes these same words and explains to us why it is so important to maintain this distinction between that which is holy and profane and that which is clean and unclean. He uses the same language from Leviticus 10.10 and at the end of it tells us why it angered the Lord so much that His priests were not obeying His will to do this. And it was because of the result that took place, that came about from failing to do this. You notice, they did violence to God's law. They profaned His holy things. They made no distinction between the holy and the profane. They did not teach the difference between the unclean and the clean. And what was the result? God says, I am profaned among them. See, that is always the main issue with false teaching. It's not merely about getting this little thing wrong over here or maybe not keeping quite in step over there. It's about the reality that false teaching defames the name of God. It distorts our perception of Him. It changes the truth that is proclaimed about Him in our minds. It causes us to think of Him in a way that is not accurate and is not true. And therefore, we interact with Him in a way that is not accurate and is not true. It profanes His name. It defames Him among us. It diminishes our view of the greatness and the beauty and the glory and the, and the grace of God when you proclaim false teachings. That is what was happening in Ephesus. Far beyond any consideration of the impact that this worldly and profane chatter was having upon the people was the effect that it was having upon the reputation of God in the testimony of the gospel. As we've seen in this letter, the false teachings that were circulating around Ephesus had defiled the true nature of gospel grace and had put in its place a gospel of works, desiring to be teachers of the law, right? Chapter 1, verse 7. It called God's, chapter 4, it called God's good gifts and creation unholy and demanded asceticism as a means to earn God's favor. Is that not a reversal of God's intention in creation? Is that not profane? And in propagating their false understandings of the truth, it twisted people's perception of the greatness of God's appointed mediator. It devalued his blood. It lessened people's perception of the holiness and the majesty and the glory of the name of God that would require us to have such a mediator. 
It yanked out from under the people any confidence in God as our Savior, in Jesus Christ as our hope. Corrupted the testimony of our Lord, and at all costs, Timothy needed to make sure that he guarded the true and pure gospel that had been entrusted to him. Guarding it from being tainted by any of these profane teachings. Now, verse 20 goes on, secondly, to describe these false teachings, not only as empty and worldly chatter, empty profane chatter, but also as opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, the word for opposing arguments here is where we get our English word antithesis. The false teaching was antithetical, or it was contrary, or stood in opposition to the gospel of God. And ironically... It not only was antithetical to the gospel, it was antithetical to its own self-proclaimed status. These opposing arguments claimed themselves to be knowledge, but in fact they were falsely named knowledge. That word there is uh, the word from which we get pseudonym. It was a false name. And so these teachings that were false, that were called knowledge, that were hailed as being true, Timothy needed to make sure he guarded against them so that the gospel that had been entrusted to him was not corrupted. Now, how was Timothy going to fight against these things? How was he going to guard the gospel over against these enemies? Well, Paul gives that answer right here in verse 20 when he calls Timothy to avoid them. He says, guard, the, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding empty and worldly chatter and the opposing arguments that is falsely called knowledge. Literally, this word avoid them, it means turning away from them. It's the same word used in chapter 1, verse 6, that described the false teachers turning away into fruitless discussions. Well, in that same way, Timothy was to guard the gospel by turning away from all that contradicted it. Now, part of what it means to avoid false teachings is to make sure that Timothy did not get caught up in these false teachings. He's not wrangling with these false teachings. He's not entering into dialogue with them as if they have something to, to offer him, some kind of understanding that he can take from their position and add to his own. Nor was it calling him to debate and quarrel with them over the use of words or arguments, to enter into those logomachy, those word battles of earlier on in 1 Timothy 6. But at the same time, Remember that in Scripture, to avoid false teaching does not mean to ignore false teaching. Avoiding these false teachings did not mean that Timothy needed to pretend or act like these false teachings weren't there. As Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says, especially elders and leaders in the church have to be ready to refute those who contradict the gospel. Now, it doesn't just say rebuke those who contradict the gospel. It says refute them. That is, they are to expose them. They are to bring to light why their teachings are false in relation to that which is true. And so defending the gospel for Timothy did not mean 
that he could simply ignore or avoid these false teachings that were spreading around Ephesus. By calling Timothy to avoid these things, he wasn't calling Timothy to ignore them or act like they didn't exist. Not only did Timothy need to stand aloof from them, but he also needed to guard the gospel by refuting those false teachings. Now stay with me. I can already tell you guys are, you guys are drawing on. Or maybe I'm the one who's, who's just kind of slowly walking along here. But please stay with me. We're almost to our final point. Almost. Okay? Timothy not only needed to, to avoid these false teachings by standing aloof from them, being separated from them, but he also needed to avoid them by publicly refuting them. He needed to stand so publicly and openly opposed to what was false that there would remain in the midst of all the chaos and confusion in Ephesus a faithful testimony to what was true. It does no good to say, I don't agree with that, I don't agree with that, if publicly you're not willing to state what you do stand for. The way that Timothy would guard the good deposit that had been placed in his hands was by exercising the principle of 2 Corinthians 10.5. As Paul says there, we destroy all speculations and lofty ideas raised up against the knowledge of God. We don't just tolerate them, we destroy them. We don't interact with them. We don't coddle them. We don't give them a space to make their voice heard. We destroy those false speculations and ideas of the knowledge of God with the truth. He goes on to say, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what it means to stand guard with the gospel and avoid false teaching. It means you destroy those false teachings in their standing in relation to the truth. And then you call upon those who are holding fast to those arguments to be captivated and obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you avoid, Timothy would avoid these false teachings not by ignoring them, but by waging war against them. And by proclaiming the true gospel over and against that which was false. Now, there's a really important principle there that I want us to take away from what Paul says. And I'm just going to mention it as briefly as I can before we move on to our final point. Just like Timothy, we live in a day that is marked by these same kinds of false teachings. We live in a day that is filled with profane ideas about God and the gospel We live in a day that is full of useless and profane chatter about what is true and not true. In fact, we are surrounded by an entire culture that is built upon the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Science. Isn't that interesting? What's called science is, in in one, one element of it, not true science, not factual science, but... What is called science is some of the most untrue propaganda that is being put out there for us to believe. Very interesting use of words. But we live in a day that is rife with this kind of false teaching. 
and these opposing arguments. I want you to notice this about what Paul says to Timothy. In order for Timothy to guard the gospel in his own day, Timothy had to stand firm against what was opposing the gospel in his own day. Did you get what I said? In order for Timothy to guard the gospel in his own day, he had to stand against all that opposed the gospel in his own day. He would not be guarding the gospel or the testimony of the gospel if he did not proclaim the truths of the gospel against the issues that were most prevalent in his time and in his context. Beloved, if we would guard the gospel in our own day, it will be the same for us. We must avoid those false ideas and teachings that are most openly opposing God's gospel, and we must do so in such a public fashion that everyone around us knows that we stand for the true gospel. You know, Martin Luther had some words to say about that. Luther said, The gospel that doesn't deal with the issues of the day is not the gospel at all. In fact, he has another quote here that, where he asserts that to hold fast to the true gospel, but to minimize or underemphasize any part of it that is being most attacked in our own day is to deny the gospel altogether in our own generation. If you're willing to say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and I believe all these things about Jesus, but you're not willing to hold up that which most emphatically confronts the culture of the day then in effect you have denied the testimony of the gospel to your culture. So Timothy, if he was going to guard the gospel, he had to guard it against those issues that were most prevalent in his own time and in his own context, and you and I have to do the same thing. So he needed to guard the gospel by opposing and avoiding those false gospels that were spreading around. Now, third and final point. The results. Notice finally in, in the middle of verse 21, or excuse me, at the beginning of verse 21, Paul brings up one last thing here relating to these false teachings that were spreading in Ephesus. At the, at the beginning of verse 21, Paul draws attention to why Timothy's faithfulness in this matter was so important. By pointing out the results that these false teachings were having upon professing believers in the church. Paul says, some have professed this false knowledge. And as a result, they have gone astray from the faith. Now, there are some people who take this to be talking about the false teachers themselves. I do not take this to be talking about the false teachers. I take this to be referring to those who are following the false teachers. I'll tell you why. The only other time this word is used here, when it talks about those who profess this, the only other time that word is used is in 1 Timothy 2.10, where it talks about women who make a profession or make a claim to godliness. That means that they are holding themselves up as godly and virtuous women. They are proclaiming godliness to be the pattern of their lives. And Paul's saying they need to live their lives in a manner that is in conformity with that proclamation. 
what they claim to be true about themselves and need to uphold in their day-to-day -day existence. That same word is what's being used here when Paul is describing those who are making this profession of worldly empty chatter and false things that are falsely called knowledge. In that same way, there were some in Ephesus who were being drawn away from the truth and they had made a profession of faith in these lies. And Paul seems to close this exhortation by drawing attention to that fact. And it seems to be in order that Paul would heighten the urgency of the calling that was upon Timothy to guard the gospel and to avoid everything that opposed it. See, Paul is highlighting why this is so important for Timothy to be on guard with the gospel and to oppose that which is false. Because that which is false, as it spreads, it ensnares people. It captures them. It leads them astray from the gospel. And Timothy, you know in Ephesus there are already some who have gone astray. There were some that were sitting under the Apostle Paul's ministry, possibly sitting under Timothy's ministry, who ultimately went astray from the gospel. You don't think that was cutting? You don't think that was alarming? You don't think that communicated to Timothy something of the importance of what he did every week when he got up to teach the people? Timothy, you're not playing a game. This isn't a nine-to-five job. This isn't professionalism. You don't clock in, clock out, go home, not think about it. Souls are at stake here, Timothy, and you are laboring for souls. Don't forget it. I'll tell you, as a pastor, it's very easy to forget that. As a pastor that has administrative things pile on you all week, it's important, or excuse me, it's easy to forget what you are ultimately called to do as a pastor in a church. What good would it do? What good, what good would anything that I do here accomplish if in the end every single one of you step into hell because you fell away from the faith? What would anything matter of what I do in this place if I don't see you in glory with Jesus? That's what I'm laboring for. That's what the elders of this church are laboring for. Sin to hell, everything else, I don't care. What I ultimately care about is your soul being safe with Jesus. Is that what you care about? Is that what you want most from me? Do you want me to tell you the truth? Do you want me to contradict the errors? Do you want me to call you out of sin? Do you want me to tend you with the sweet precious hope and words of the gospel. To communicate something of God's wooing heart to sinners to you. Do you want to look at me and see Jesus? Well, that requires that I keep in mind what is ultimately important in relation to my work that the Lord's entrusted to me here. Your souls are what is most important. And Timothy needed to remember that the souls sitting under him, some of them had already gone astray. And this is why it was so vital and so important for him to guard the true gospel whereby men and women can be saved. And there's so much to say here. You guys okay for a minute? 
on one side of this, what we're talking about here is apostasy. That there were people in the church that were apostatizing from the faith by following error. And you remember from chapter 4 what Timothy was to do to safeguard the church against that. He was just to keep preaching the truth. He was to keep, ta- keep teaching the truth, give himself to public reading of scripture and exhortation and the teaching. He was to pay attention to himself and to the teaching, for by so doing he would ensure salvation for himself and for his hearers. Right? The means of grace through the preaching of the word. There's a lot at stake there. So what we're talking about is apostasy. And on one level of apostasy, those who apostatize from the faith, we can rightly say they fell away from the faith because their faith was never genuine to begin with. Right? I mean, that's 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they never really were of us. Right? They didn't belong to the church. They didn't truly belong to the church of Jesus Christ. They made a profession, but it was an empty profession. We're going to see in the Gospel of John when we eventually get there, the Gospel of John is full of empty and false professions of faith. But here's the thing. The reason I believe Paul, Paul closes his instruction to Timothy highlighting this reality is that even though all of that is true, And that apostasy, those who apostatized from the faith were those who never actually had true faith to begin with. Even though that is true, I believe that Paul closes this letter emphasizing the dangers of apostasy. Because we never find Christ or any of his apostles or any of the most used men of God in the history of the church standing indifferent to those who wander away from the faith. We never find the most godly, holy, spirit-filled men sitting back and watching everybody apostatize from the faith and saying, well, I guess they're just not one of us. We'll go on. You never find Jesus or any of the apostles saying, okay, I guess they just weren't among the elect. We won't worry about them. You remember how Jesus felt about sinners who were going astray from the truth. He wasn't indifferent. Luke 19, verses 41 through 42, it says that Jesus, looking over Jerusalem, this city that would reject him so fully that they would crucify him, looking upon the city, Jesus wasn't indifferent. Jesus began to weep. He says, oh, that you had known the visitation. Oh, that you had known the things that make for peace. You didn't recognize it. Mark 10, 21, in reference to the rich young ruler whom Jesus knew was going to choose his possessions over the Lord. It doesn't say Jesus was indifferent and said, hey, man, take it or leave it, just whatever you want. It says Jesus, looking at him, felt love for him. That word there is uh, the, the, it's the noun agape. An intense love, a committed love that Jesus was feeling for this man whom he knew was going to depart from him. John 5, 34, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who were the tip of the spear of the opposition that stood against him. He says, I say these things to you so that you might be saved. 
My point is, Jesus was not indifferent about those who did not believe the truth. Nor was the Apostle Paul. You remember in Romans 9, chapter 9, verses 2 and 3? It says that his heart was filled with sorrow and grief over those who would not believe. He says that on behalf of his kinsmen, he would rather be cut off from Christ and go to hell than have them live without Christ. And and, and unless you start thinking to yourself, wait a second, Paul, election, don't forget about election. Paul says that in the chapter where he most clearly defines election. Paul knew about election. He knew about reprobation. He knew about those who would and would not be saved. And yet it didn't affect his heart. He was still filled with compassion over those that were not believing in the gospel. Philippians 3.8, you remember what he said about those who were walking as enemies of the cross? He says, I can't even write about them without weeping. He was not indifferent. Those who are most filled with the Holy Spirit and those who truly grasp the greatness of the gospel of Christ are never indifferent when people are refusing to come to Christ and be saved. Now, as we close here, I submit to you that we have lost this kind of urgency and longing to see sinners won over to our King. I'm not saying it's diminished. I'm not saying it's kind of there. I'm saying the kind of urgency that we see here in the Apostle Paul, we've lost it. Why have we lost it? I think there are many reasons for that. One of which being pride. We have a spirit of a Pharisee in us. I thank you, God, that I'm not like one of these. Thank you, God, I'm not like the homosexual. Thank you, God, I'm not like the transgender. Thank you, God, I'm not like the drunk. We've lost our, we've lost that sense of the reality that we were just like them. Such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our God, by the Spirit of our God in the name of Christ. I think pride gets in the way. I think unbelief gets in the way. But I think primarily, mixed with that unbelief, is a deep distraction. We are deeply distracted from living lives that are fully devoted to the king and to his kingdom. We're filled with the things of this world and we are not filled with the Holy Spirit the way we are commanded to be. I want in, I'm not, I almost asked you. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you. Answer this question in your own heart, though. Could you stand up and say, I am being filled with the Spirit the way God commands me to be? It's because we're too full of the things of this world. And a Holy Spirit is not going to fill a place that's filled with profane clutter.
we're distracted from living a life that is fully for the kingdom of heaven, and therefore we do not have the same joy that the kingdom of heaven has when even one sinner repents of his sin and turns to Christ. We've lost something. And I think the greatest problem here is that we refuse to recognize that we've lost something. We look around us and we're like, man, what's happening to the church? What's happening to missions? Where are all, why are all these godly leaders falling away from the faith? No one wakes up to say, what are we doing wrong? It's always them, them, them. What did they do? We're never asking ourselves, what am I doing wrong? Lord, why aren't you filling me the way that you filled the apostles in the New Testament? Lord, why am I not being filled like a Whitfield or a Wesley or a Luther or a Knox? Oh my goodness, have you ever read anything from John Knox? That man was a walking demonstration of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. I wish we were more like men and women of old who when they saw the world around them plunging into ruin and sin and unbelief, they were not content just to let them go. Spurgeon said, if men are to go to hell, let them crawl over our bodies to get there. We're not like that. See, men and women of old, when they saw the world going awry and they saw apostasy on the rise, they weren't content just to let it happen. They labored together sometimes in all-night prayer meetings on their faces, weeping for hours, praying that God would save those sinners around them and would deliver the world around them from their ungodliness and bring them to the King. When have you and I ever done that together? When have we ever been on our knees praying and begging and beseeching God to send out laborers into his vineyard and to gather in a harvest for the Lord Jesus because he's worthy of it? When has that ever happened? Not only together, when have you ever done that on your own? We're not like our forebearers. We're not like those who have passed the baton on to us. But we're called to be like them. So why aren't we? I think this isn't happening much. The kind of growth and power victory that we find in the early church isn't happening much around us because we don't live and pray as if that victory is actually something that's achievable. You know, God may not will for that victory to come. That doesn't mean we shouldn't live like it and doesn't mean we shouldn't ask for it. Maybe some of us have to confront the fact that we actually don't believe God can bring a reversal to what's going on in our world. Maybe even worse, some of us need to confront the fact that 
we think God is not willing to bring about a reversal among the ungodly in our world. If Timothy would guard what had been entrusted to him, this treasure, he would need to stand opposed to the false teachings that were around him. He would need to do so in such a way that all in Ephesus knew the difference between the light and the darkness, knew the difference between the truth and that which was untrue. And he needed to labor for the souls that sat under his teaching. And you and I, beloved, we are called to do the same. Maybe in different ways, maybe it manifests differently, but the calling is still the same. Guard the truth, stand against the lies, and labor for souls.